You're listening to a sermon podcast for a time like this from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. Then David slept with his ancestors and was buried in the city of David. We first met David as a shepherd boy way back on June 13th. And Sunday by Sunday, we have been tracking his story in all of its complexities. When we left off last Sunday, David was in a state of grief, lamenting the death of his rebel son, Absalom. From there, David does pick himself up to reclaim the city of Jerusalem, which had been lost during the civil war led by Absalom. The remainder of the second book of Samuel recounts a series of other skirmishes, one more internal rebellion against David, and then offers David's long hymn of praise. It's a psalm, really as he looks back over his life as a king. For all of the confident gratitude of that long hymn, things are hardly settled in Israel. As the books of Samuel transition to the books of kings, we see David pictured as follows. He was, quote, old and advanced in years. Although they covered him with clothes, he could not get himself warm. It's that picture, right? His frailty is such that no matter how many coats they put on him, he was still cold. His servants come up with a strategic response. They seek out a beautiful woman to accompany David in his bed to keep him warm. They find a young woman named Abishag, who, according to the text, quote, became the king's attendant and served him. But the king did not know her sexually. Now, there is no record of how Abishag might have felt about this less than voluntary assignment, nor is it indicated whether or not David couldn't be sexual with her, on account of infirmity, or whether maybe in his old age and in his vulnerability, David finally began to learn something about respect, respect for this woman who cared for him. I'd like to think the latter. I'd like to think that in his vulnerability, he could recognize in the beautiful young woman a beauty that was more about care than anything else. But regardless, what this little vignette shows is a greatly diminished David, anticipating the reality of his approaching death. Yet even then, he has not ended his political maneuvering, as yet another son, this time Adonijah, tries to mount a popular movement that will lead him toward the throne as his father's successor, 
All the while, David was intent on it being Solomon who would succeed him. So there's still a great deal of conflict and unhappiness in that family. Well, when Solomon does ascend to the throne, that's where our reading tonight kicks in. Then David slept with his ancestors and was buried in the city of David. And Solomon sat on the throne of his father and his kingdom was firmly established. Solomon, of course, he is remembered for his building of the temple, which is part of the story that will be next week, and for his great wisdom. His name is connected directly to the book of Proverbs and often with Ecclesiastes as well, though that book doesn't actually explicitly name Solomon. Rather, it's credited to the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, which may well be a later attribution given the book's literary style. Similarly, the Apocrypha includes a book called The Wisdom of Solomon, which was written in Greek in a style typical of the first century before Christ. Now, that's not, by the way, a matter of fraud. But instead, for somebody hundreds of years later to write a book and attach the name Solomon to it would have been a respectful and celebratory gesture, nodding to Solomon's great reputation as a source of Israel's wisdom tradition. We think very differently about copyright and author credit in this world. Well, regardless, the story we read tonight is something of a classic one when it comes to marking Solomon's legendary wisdom. It's actually one that I remember being taught in Sunday school in grade five or six at Westwood Presbyterian Church. Our teacher, Mrs. Lamont by name, she stood at the blackboard and wrote three things, long life, great wealth, and wisdom. And then she asked the kids in the Sunday school to vote on which we would wish for if we could. Now, I, I have no memory whatsoever how the polling turned out, but then she turned and she told the story of God coming to Solomon in a dream, the story that we heard Sharon read tonight. And the Lord comes and says to him, ask what I should give you. And Solomon gives quite a long reply, but in the end he says, Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, able to discern between good and evil. For who can govern this, your great people? He's asked for wisdom. Well, in the story, this so delights God that Solomon is given that understanding mind, that wisdom, but not only that, the text says, I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor all your life. No other king shall compare with you. If you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your life. So the point of that Sunday school lesson with the words up on the chalkboard and these 
the 10-year-old kids voting on what they thought was a good thing to wish for. The point of that lesson was to show how right Solomon had been to ask for wisdom over all else. And in doing so, he got all else as well. Score or is it? Yes, Solomon does gain fabulous wealth. Yes, he does reign for 40 years. His reputation for wisdom is celebrated both in 1 Kings and in those biblical books connected to his name. But there are troubling textures to his reign. For instance, the builder of the great temple which is described at length, it has so much beauty. The next thing, or he actually builds parallel to that, his own home, and his own home is bigger than the temple. Ha! Huh. The whole of the 11th chapter of First Kings is actually given over to Solomon's failings, including an idolatrous devotion that he developed to Sidonian goddess Astarte and the Ammonite god Milcom. So, builder of the temple, yet he pays homage and tribute to these import gods as well. What's more, as Peter Leithart points out in his commentary on First and Second Kings, quote, royal wisdom so heavily touted at the opening of the book fails to deliver showing that Israel's hope for restoration, blessing, and life does not lie in human wisdom, no matter what heights it attains. Now, Peter Leithart's perspective is key to getting our minds around why we need to pay deep attention to these ancient stories, around why I have spent the past two months preaching on these texts. In the introduction to his commentary, Leithart makes the observation that while these books, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, are typically categorized as historical books in Christian Bibles, in the Jewish tradition, the books of Samuel and Kings are included as part of the books of the prophets, Nevi'im. They stand right there alongside of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, as well as all of the various minor prophets. Now that's partly because prophets play such a big role in the stories told in these books. Samuel himself and Nathan, both who play prominent roles in First and Second Samuel. And then when we move into the book of Kings, the books of Kings, there's Nathan still, but there's Shemaiah, Ahijah, Jehu, Elijah, Micaiah, Elisha, Jonah, Isaiah, and notably, the woman prophet, Huldah, who counsels King Josiah on how he should govern. He, the rare king in Israel's story, who actually seems to respond to the claims placed upon him by God and God's prophets. But there's more than just a lot of prophets in the stories, Leithart contends. 
For there's a powerfully prophetic message that courses all the way through these stories as a steady undercurrent. Right from the moment near the beginning when Samuel advises the people that their desire to have a king like all other nations is wrong-headed, even dangerous. Samuel tells them what kings will do. They'll draft your sons into their armies. They'll make your daughters into servants. They'll tax your land. They'll tax your crops. You don't really want a king, but they want one. They want one desperately. Right from that moment, early, early, early in the texts, there's this message. Let me cite Peter Leithart at some length. The message of the prophets is not, quote, Israel has sinned, therefore Israel needs to get its act together or it will die. The message is, quote, Israel has sinned, therefore Israel must die. And its only hope is to entrust itself to a God who will give it new life on the far side of death. Or even, quote, Israel has sinned, Israel is already dead, cling to the God who raises the dead. This, Leithart says, is precisely the prophetic message of First and Second Kings, and I would add of First and Second Samuel as well, which systematically dismantles Israel's confidence in everything but the omnipotent mercy and patience of God. So, again, listen, according to this biblical theologian, the message of these books is Israel has sinned, Israel is already dead, Cling to the God who raises the dead. Human wisdom, even from someone so revered as Solomon, is not enough. Nor is royal power exercised by someone so beloved in the tradition as King David. It's not enough. There is no way for Israel to behave moralize, strategize, improve, innovate, repair, or rebuild its way back to life. Only by turning and clinging to the God who raises the dead will they again have life, which is the lesson they begin to learn in the Babylonian exile, and which then positively explodes into life in the four Gospels and in a very particular way in the epistles of Paul. You see, confronting the human inability to redeem, restore our own lives is not bad news, not at all. But rather, it's the prelude to the good news about which Robert Ferrer Capon has famously taught, insisting that Christ did not come to fix the fixable or improve the improvable, but rather he came to save the last, the least, the lost, and to raise the dead, which is every single one of us, if we're honest about it. And it's also David and Solomon, Absalom and Tamar, Bathsheba and Uriah, Samuel and Nathan, and the whole host of others who have populated these stories over the past two months. We're all of us lost sheep. And it is in Christ that we can be found, will be found, 
have been found. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This has been a sermon podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For information on our church, including further resources during these days of the COVID-19 global pandemic, or to provide support for our online work, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca. Thanks for listening.